Welcome to Pro Corner. I'm your host, Austin Surhoff. This week, I've got part two of my conversation with Cal Ripken Jr. Last week, we covered the serious side of what made Cal great, uh, a little bit into how he was able to maintain such an amazing thing like a consecutive game streak, showing up to work every single day for 15 years without a break, while also maintaining the level of excellence required to be considered, in my opinion, in many people's opinions, the greatest shortstop in the modern era of baseball. And then we also touched on the lighter side of things. I hope you guys enjoyed Cal's um, scouting reports on who could ball on the Orioles and the Ravens. This week, it's the same sort of balance of uh, serious and fun. We talk a little bit more about the streak and especially on the great Orioles teams of 1996 and 1997. Cal was in an interesting position of being a part of a baseball team that was the best in baseball, and he had already had the record for his consecutive game streak. So why do you keep going? Well, just like in episode one where he talks about how the streak was only a result of him showing up to work every day, and if it would best serve the team for him to play, then he would play. And that continued into 96 and 97. He rarely thought twice about it. There's also the fun side. Um, we talk about a pretty legendary baseball fight that he was in, uh, not necessarily participating in full on, but uh, the Orioles-Yankees fight that many baseball fans may remember from 1998. He gives us a couple juicy details about what was going on that day, a little bit of background behind you know, the storylines that go into it, almost like it was a WWE match with some buildup and then the aftermath of it. Um, and then we also get a little bit that I hope everyone gains a little bit of insight from. I really enjoyed this bit the most, and that was his take on uh, what made the manager of the great Orioles teams of that of those mid-90s, especially the 97 team that was in first place the entire season from game one to game 162, uh, and that was Davey Johnson. Uh, in the modern era, so the last 10 years or so, feels like the average person has a lot more access to this coach is like this or that coach is meant to develop players. This coach is more of a player's coach and you bring him in to win championships. So everybody knows Phil Jackson won 11 championships. Um, and he's a guy that, especially as he developed his reputation on the Bulls and then went to go coach the Lakers, he was known as a player's coach. He knew how to get the most out of veteran teams that were ready to win a championship. Um, whereas there's other coaches who are known, uh, whether it's charitably or not, or whether they see themselves this way as coaches that build franchises, right? They are the ones that strip the franchise down to its studs and then build it back up and turn them into a contender that then the stereotypical players coach comes in and guides to a championship when they're done with their building phase. So in baseball for a long time, Buck Showalter has been known as the guy that builds up franchises, um, whether that's charitable or not. I mean, Buck led an Orioles team that had the most wins in the American league for a three-year stretch in the 2010. So who's to say what kind of manager he is? Um, point being, Davey Johnson is someone who was a player's manager and he guided the Orioles teams in 96 and 97 to uh, the best record in baseball in 97 and a playoff spot in 96. And then later in his career guided a, another mature team, the early 2010s Washington Nationals to an NLCS appearance. So 
whether or not you care about the minutia of what makes um, Davy Johnson tick, maybe you're an Orioles fan or a Nationals fan. Um, but if you're not, I like to think the insights are valuable in a general sense of this is what makes a great manager great. This is what made a guy who was known as a player's coach who would coach great franchises to great success when they were ready to be coached to great success um, that way. And Cal's insight in him, again, was the most important part of the episode for me to learn about. Um, maybe you'll find something else interesting. That's enough out of me. Let's get to part two of my conversation with Cal Ripken Jr. You touched on something that is especially prevalent in modern conversations. You're almost ahead of the curve on this. Uh, about what your dad said about you can't redo yesterday's game. You can't play tomorrow's game yet. I mean, what you're describing is literally just presence. Mm -hmm. And that's something that a lot of people talk about in modern times as like a, that, that is a major advantage that people had. So I, I understand dealing with the challenge of presence when, um, when things are not going as well, say on teams that you were on that maybe weren't, as, uh, weren't on the path to making the playoffs. Did you ever have to stay present and challenge yourself to not get too far ahead of yourself. I'm moving on to 97 now. When you were on a team like the wire to wire team, where you were thinking like, okay, we're like playoffs, World Series, wire to wire. Like, how would you keep the team present? Because at this point, you are, if I had to guess, you were one of the captains in the clubhouse. You were one of the leaders. You've had, you've got 15 years of tenure on this team. How are you translating what you've learned to your teammates? Uh, in a locker room setting, especially on a team, like I said, like the wire to wire team that was just blowing everybody out, out of the water and putting together this amazing season. It's really easy for teams to get ahead of themselves and think too future tense. And that's when the slumps happen. Yeah, for sure. Um, there's a couple of things that come to mind right away. Um, there was a low moment in my, uh, in my uh, pre-1995 point where I thought about taking a day off. Mm -hmm. And I remember this, I was struggling. I think it was 90, I know Rick Sutcliffe was on the team. So it had to be 90, 93 ish. Um, it's probably 93. Mm -hmm. And I was getting a lot of criticism and I felt like I forgot how to hit and, you know, things were just uh, problematic. And I remember standing at shortstop and batting practice with Rick and I go, I go, um, what do you think about, you know, this stuff's getting to me. I'm thinking about taking a day off. I'm thinking about just ending it. What do you, what do you think? And he paused for a minute. And he said, uh, he goes, okay, well, I'm pitching tomorrow. And uh, if you take a game off uh, tomorrow, um, you'll, the streak will certainly uh, end um, uh, because, uh, because I'm going to kill you. And he kind of <laughs> said that with a straight face. And then he, he went on to explain. He said, look, he said, I, I get to pitch one out of every five games. And when I pitch, I want the best team behind me to give me personally a chance to do well and, uh, and to win the game. And the other four pitchers feel the exact same way I do. And I want you out there behind me. He says, so in some ways, he said, stop whining about, you know, you're hitting, fix it. And he goes, and then this was the important lesson. He goes, uh, can you bunt for a hit? And he, and he goes, uh, I said, well, I've done it from time to time. Um, they wouldn't be expecting it. Can you bunt for a hit? He says, then you go one for four. That's a start. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so, 
bring it back to a focus. And um, I was always big on perspective anyway, but at that moment, I let perspective get away from me. Mm -hmm. The things you can control are the things in the present, the things that are now. You can learn from the past, but if you dwell on them in a negative way, it's going to affect your ability to play. And he says, do you think you can get one hit a game? You know, one hit a game, that's one for four. And I said, yeah, I think I could. And then once you start building that, you get a bunt base hit, you know, maybe you get a blooper, maybe you hit a ball hard and you get a hit. And all of a sudden now you, you've started a, a path more towards uh, getting back. And it is, it is about control. So you, you want to pass that sort of experience on to the younger players that play that don't quite get that yet. And in the 97 season, um, if I remember correctly, I played through a herniated disc in 97. I blew mm -hmm. out my disc in, uh, in July, middle of July. The most excruciating pain. Um, the doctors were saying you had a good run. You're going to be out six weeks. And I posed the question to the doctor. I said, okay, if, if I can stand it, would I do any permanent damage to myself if I played through it? They say, you can't do that. You can't play through it. I go, no, answer, answer my question. Would I do any permanent damage to, my, uh, to me if I did that? And they said, no, I think you, you wouldn't. And so I said, well, I'll, I'll give it a try. And a herniated disc, the pain that is inside your leg that runs down your leg, it was, uh, um, the herniation was at L4-5, which affected my total left leg. And it comes out of your hip, and you have no, um, it's like a fire is burning inside of you the whole time. But mm -hmm. I will tell you, that's probably the most selfish act that I ever had during the whole time. Because mm -hmm. all of a sudden, I was playing on the best team in the league. And I did not want to miss it. You know, I went through all these other rebuilding processes, miserable times, and you had to challenge yourself to get through those times. But now you're on a good team and we're winning. I don't want to let them, you know, play without me. And there was also in that year, um, Eric Davis was diagnosed with cancer. Mm -hmm. um, Robbie Alomar had a, a rough year after the 96, uh, you know, season. He uh, got mm -hmm. hurt and he was on disabled list. So when that happened to me, all of a sudden, that would have been three of our starters that uh, would go down. And I remember Davey Johnson kind of looking at me and said, can you play? Can you play? And so I persevered and moved through that in, in a way that I can't understand how, how I did. Um, he and it was he kind of gave you a soft, like, hey, like. like he was like, looking at me, and I had, uh, I had an ice pack on my back. I had uh, electric stem going on. I was trying to get to somewhere. And, I, and the doctor said I couldn't, you know. And so I'm sitting there thinking, um, I don't know what I'm going to do, but it seemed like the, that David Johnson, it was like, wait, we, we, the Yankees are pushing us a little bit. We can't, we can't fall apart now. And it was important for me to go through there. So talk about focusing on the present. You had, it was one at bat, one play, one inning at a time. And then you, you reevaluated and kind of got through that. And then during that time frame, I think I hit close to 300, you know, um, even losing a little power. And I got some big hits, and I had a good series in uh, New York where we pushed the Yankees back in early September. Um, and then everything was fine. You know, then, then I started to get some relief from my back, and then we went into the playoffs, and I did, did really well. But mm -hmm. uh, that, that kind of experience is you don't worry about tomorrow. You don't look ahead. You don't, you don't uh, think that you're going to be in the playoffs, and you start thinking, who do you want to play? It's in the moment. You're in the moment. You do what you have to do now. And then you, uh, you, you wait until that challenge comes uh, for the next day. So I think those sort of perspective things, I learned that from Rick Sutcliffe um, in many ways. And I learned to try to, to tell the younger players that you can only control what you're doing right now. 
And so control your batting, uh, you're in your batting cage, try to fix your swing in the batting cage and then control your bats, you know, and don't worry about anything beyond that. And if you could stay in the moment and you can keep that perspective, then some of these successes and these accomplishments will build on each other. And then you'll get your confidence back and things will be okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to talk about uh, Davey Johnson since you brought him up. He was mm-hmm. another big change that had happened in the offseason in 95, guided the two best Orioles teams of the 90s and 96 and 97. Um, obviously, you guys signed, again, some great free agents and loaded up the talent of the team. Was there anything different that he did in the locker room that stood out to you, whether it was his approach to the game that you hadn't seen before? I know I, I see a lot in sports that managers and coaches, some are better at rebuilding franchises with young players from the ground up. Some are better at managing, you know, older seasons, uh, established stars in a way that's very strategic. So what was it about Davey that contributed to you guys having two very successful seasons in 96 and especially 97? There's all, I imagine Davey could have managed both groups, uh, what you're saying, but in that particular year. And fair enough, I should say it doesn't preclude someone from being able to do both. Right. That's fair but, enough, but, I should say that. Yeah, but Davey's reputation at the time was he was a player's manager. Um, he uh, was sort of a veteran player manager that uh, would put people in their roles and let them do their jobs, you know, and, uh, and he was a very good strate- strategic manager. He understood the long season – he managed the bullpen very well. Um, he was very consistent with his moves. Um, that would uh, the worst thing a manager can do, in my opinion, is make some ra- radical sort of moves in the moment in today's mm-hmm. game that will um, um, limit you on your wins for the next two or three or four days. So all that stuff I said about not looking for ahead, a manager can uh, can put your team in a weaker position by his moves. So if, uh, if the starting pitcher gives up uh, four or five runs in the first inning, when you take them out, you've made, you've made the bullpen now work to get you to where the starter was going to get you. Now, if you do that two or three times in a row, um, and then you bring your closer in in a losing game, um, and just to get, get through that, you are straining your bullpen in ways that, uh, you know, is not healthy. So that if you do play three or four one-run games in a row – you want your closer and you want your bullpen ready to meet the matchups of that game. And if you've mm-hmm. used them improperly in, in, in losing games or outside their role, then it limits your ability to close out that game and win that game. So Davey was really good at establishing the roles in the bullpen and then sticking with those roles. And even I remember him saying in an early game, he goes, I'm not going to ruin my bullpen, you know, for this game. So it wasn't like he was conceding the game because he still wanted to win the game, but he wasn't going to make these uh, uh, radical moves to save the game right there, which would then put the team in a weaker position for the next three or four days. So I thought he was really consistent. Uh, Randy, Randy Myers was our closer. Armando mm-hmm. Benitez was our setup guy. And Armando Benitez had closer stuff. Armando Benitez might have been one of the most valuable players that we had on that team because he pitched in every tie game. Um, he pitched in uh, the winning game. So if the game went into extra innings, he was a horse enough to go, you know, 9, 10, maybe 11, or 9 and 10, give us a chance to win those ball games. Randy Myers never came in a game in which he wasn't a safe situation all year. Mm-hmm. So just about the discipline for that. Randy Myers' job was to close out the game, get the last three out, sometimes maybe get the last out. And Davey Johnson did not bring him in in a tie game. 
He did mm-hmm. not bring him in a losing game. He kept him fresh where he could perform all the way. And I think he saved 45 out of 46. He only blow one, blown one save. That's an example of Davey understanding which roles. And Armando, Armando got quite a few wins, or he kept us in, in there because he was a horse enough to play that role. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually he became a closer in the big leagues, but he was a very valuable part of our team that year. But Davey Johnson was really good at using, utilizing both of those guys in their roles. Armando especially was so exciting, especially to, you know, I was six, seven years old at the time and we'd be sitting behind home plate looking towards left field. And whenever Armando came in every pitch, hundred, (laughs) hundred different from what you guys are worrying about on the field, but he was so exciting in that way. Um, I think Armando, Armando was also throwing it and going like this, like, (laughs) well, he had a big motion. So he could could have probably just spun himself around without looking like he was looking right. I do remember a little story about Armando. Armando came up Please. Uh, at the, after the, the year before, I think, and uh, Albert Bell, it might have been the 95 season, and Albert Bell probably should have been the MVP of that year. He had 50 homers and 50 doubles in 144 games, I think. We had a shortened schedule. Um, he, didn't, he didn't get voted the MVP, but Albert Bell in the month of September was the hottest hitter on the planet, and he comes in, and Armando is facing uh, Albert uh, Bell, and I'm thinking, okay, this ought to be interesting. You know, you got a young guy with a great arm. What's he going to do? What kind of what 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 matchup is going to happen right here? And he blew um, uh, Albert away. You know, and I and it made me like go, hmm. That's a, you know, when somebody's that hot, you know, it doesn't matter who's on the mound. And uh, you know, he made a significant um, uh, a few pitches, and Albert Albert didn't have him zoned in. And so that was a good indication of of the potential that uh, Armando had. Mm -hmm. Uh, Quickly on Armando, because uh, I want to utilize your time the best that we can and get to one more important topic. But do you have any stories either from during that fight in uh, with the Yankees when Armando being Tino Martinez or anything after the fact, because I remember being a little kid, my dad coming home and I was like, dad, what the heck happened? <laughs> you know, and, and, and a little six year old, you're like, dad, did you get somebody? And you look at the video. He's, he's the one separating people. He's the peacekeeper. Right. Uh, do you have any stories from that fight that you remember? Cause I know Orioles fans that I talked to, they still remember that. Like that, that was a crazy moment in Orioles history. Yeah. Um, let me see. Where do I start for that one? Um, the, and it's not funny, but, um, it wasn't the first time that Armando hit Tino Martinez in the back after giving up a grand slam. So, right. So this is, uh, this had been building, right? Well, I don't know if it's building or not. Armando in his, in his younger days uh, was emotional. He was an emotional pitcher on the mound. And when things go wrong, it was almost like um, uh, he would lose control of himself a little bit. And I, I don't condone it at all. You don't throw at anybody because you give up a grand slam home run. Um, but we were playing the uh, Mariners, you know, maybe the year before. Tino was with the Mariners at the time. Mm-hmm. And Edgar Martinez hit a grand slam off Armando. Mm-hmm. And Tino came up, and I could see Armando's steam coming out of his ears, and he was all mad. And I'm thinking, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And he <laughs> the first pitch at 100 miles an hour and hit Tino right in the back. You know, there were some words that were uh, said and everybody – because there's no way you can't say that's intentional. That's not intentional. So, so it, it was intentional. 
And it goes and you could feel it coming. You could be like, oh, here we go. Like Armando's about to do this. Well, you keep saying, I hope you don't. I hope you don't, you know, and, uh, but it didn't happen. So then a year goes by and Armando is more mature. He's having good success and going through. But in Yankee Stadium in that particular day, uh, Bernie Williams came up and he gave up a grand slam at a key time in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bernie running around the bases. And Tino's the next hitter. <laughs> I'm, looking, I'm looking at it and flashbacks were coming into my mind. I'm thinking, please don't do that, Armando. And you could see this steam coming out of his ears. And he hit, he hit him right in the middle of the back. And almost to the point where he couldn't talk. You know, the wind got knocked out of him. But then the Yankee dugout came out. I remember Daryl Strawberry being the sort of the leader, you know, um, yelling out a little bit. And then we're sort of the persons that stand in front. I ran up in front of uh, Armando while the Yankee bench was, uh, was, uh, was approaching and Daryl's um, saying, saying things to uh, Armando. And you're kind of standing in front of him. You're saying, okay, we don't agree with what he did, but you can't have him. You know, he's ours. And then he gets, he gets flanked from the back. Um, the bullpen comes in. I think uh, Graham Lloyd and Jeff Nelson mm-hmm. took a swing at him from the back, which then makes everybody swing around because now the fight is, is, is happening in the back. And it starts to move towards the dugout where we were on that side. And so Armando, after getting nicked in the thing, puts up his things and starts uh, throwing. And Armando's a big, intimidating dude, by the way. And he starts throwing, throwing punches, trying to, you know, wildly, like at anybody that was close by. And then there was a brief moment where Scott Brocious stood there next to him, and Armando was right there. And Scott Brocious knew he was the only one there. And he kind of looked around to see if there was any help. And he kind of went like this and then ran away. <laughs> he kind of threw his hand <laughs> away. So then we're by the dugout. Daryl Strawberry works his way over and then lunges and slaps um, Armando in the back of the head, falls down into the dugout. Mm-hmm. So I'm on the top step of the dugout right next to Armando, and I jumped down to stop, stop him. But right when I was jumped down, Alan Mills was already in the, in the tunnel. He was already down there. And Alan Mills came up and drilled Strawberry, you know, with a clean, hard punch. Mm-hmm. And then I jumped down and held on to Strawberry, and I was grabbing the underneath the uh, the uh, bench because it was elevated, and I was using leverage to push him under the bench and kind of hold and keep my head from getting hit myself. And so then that stopped, and I just I just uh, remember Strawberry saying, "Why, Millsy? Why? Like I'm going to get you or something like that." And I was just <laughs> holding on him so tight, and you could feel how strong Strawberry was just by. Um, using all your your leverage to uh, hold him down. Yeah, I mean, he scary, was he was, was one of those scary. incredible specimens. It was a scary fight um, in the sense that it, it could have come from all different angles. And when you get into that, you don't know the personalities of all the people uh, involved because some people will come up and cheap shot you or try to get you and then run around someplace else. So it could come from any different, different direction, but mostly you're trying to keep the peace. You're trying to get it back to, to where it was. And I think we all felt that uh, Armando was wrong, but uh, we still couldn't give him, couldn't give him up to, uh, to the other team. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for the first time, the crowd in Yankee Stadium is a loud crowd, and mm-hmm. you're getting closer. There were times when I thought maybe people would come out of the stands, you know, and then kind of join in. They would rush the field, you know, because mm-hmm. they're all yelling and screaming uh, right around the dugout. But That's uh, one that's- of the few baseball fights where it probably got close, right? I mean, maybe outside of like a, a Red Sox-Yankees fight because it was so flagrant on the opposing team from Armando that he started the fight. And it, and like you said, it spilled into the dugout. Um, yeah. I wouldn't have been surprised if people had come down because that was just an inst- That was one of the crazier fights I've ever seen in my life. So for a young person, I do remember too, at the end of this, I uh, went in the locker room 
and afterwards. And a lot of people were saying, I think uh, even Ray Miller was the manager at the time, saying he's embarrassed uh, that, uh, he, um, for something like that to happen, how wrong Armando did. It was almost like they threw Armando under the bus too much. You know, mm-hmm. they, were, they were embarrassed by this and all that kind of stuff. But Armando made a mistake. Now, it was the second time he made that mistake, but he's still a young guy. And I remember him sitting in his locker, you know, with his uniform on, and most everybody was gone. You know, and so the bus was gone, um, and he's still sitting in there. And I remember going up next to him and, and sitting next to him on the bench and, and looking at him, you know. Uh, and I go, uh, um, you know, he was all kind of upset and feeling bad that he'd done something really wrong. And I was trying to, to make him feel like, I go, look, you know, it wasn't right what you did, you know, uh, you know, drilling somebody. But I did say, I said, it took a lot of guts to do it in Yankee Stadium. And he, uh, he looks over at me, whatever else, and smiles a little bit. And I go, it'll be okay. We'll get past this. We'll do all that. And bi- that's a moment where you can build some trust. And I remember uh, him looking at me and feeling that I was on his side, you know, even, mm-hmm. though, even though I told him it was wrong um, and that uh, things would be all right. So when I, if he got wild or something or his emotions got up, you know, in future, future appearances, I had the ability to run in from shortstop. Uh, um, or talk to him, and uh, and then bring him back down a little bit. So there was there was there was some emotional learning that took place. But Armando was really young when he came to the big leagues. I'm 21, and he's uh, he's right in the middle of this. And uh, and in some ways, he had to control his his temper, and we were able to help control that. But at that moment, I felt I built a a, a certain trust with Armando that I could utilize later on to help him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he's 21 is unbelievable because, you know, when you're a kid, 21 might as well be 41. Like, I looked at you guys as all the same age as a lot of kids do. But now looking back, I'm 30. I'm like, man, when I was 21, I might have run and tried to just fight Tito Martinez. I wouldn't even throw the ball at him. So, of course, he's going to fly off the handle on that. Um, We're about to wrap up here, but I do want to just cover one more topic because this has been so awesome so far. And I think, frankly, the most teachable across – all sports. So uh, I had an Olympic gold medalist on here recently who he switched sports or sorry, switched events when he needed to pivot after being amazing at one event for a long time, he changed strokes, changed events. And that pivot allowed him to get to an Olympic gold medal. Uh, 97, Mike Bordick comes in and you had dealt with competition before you've spoken on other excellent podcasts that a shortstop would come in you would see it as competition. It would raise your game. So what finally, after 15, 16, 15 years in the big leagues at shortstop, being a revolutionary player at the position, what was it about that year that everyone, that you or Davey Johnson or whether it was a collective decision, it was, hey, it's time to move over. What was the strategy behind it? Because like you said, Davey was very strategic. Um, was it a pivot to improve your own performance? Was it for the team? What was it that inspired that move after such a long time at one spot? Well, there was always talk, you know, when I first moved over, um, when Earl, um, they said I was too big to play shortstop, et cetera, et cetera, that it was a temporary move. Mm-hmm. And that temporary move was challenged many different times, you know, like, right. uh, and sorry. Uh, and just to preface for people listening, I'm sorry. Uh, you came up third base and then you were moved to shortstop when you were younger. So this was actually in a roundabout way, a move back to third. So sorry, so, I had to preface that. Uh, to, give, to give full context, uh, uh, I was a third baseman, established myself as a third baseman. Earl Weaver was my manager. And one time out of the blue, 
he comes in and moves me from short to third. He wasn't happy with what was happening with shortstop. And that move was considered really a, a temporary move to bolster the offense and get us going. Now, I laugh now when I say that, and especially when I'm out speaking in public, I go, and that temporary move, that temporary move lasted 15 years. <laughs> you know? And so yeah. during that time, because people looked at it that way, when we got a trade with Eddie Murray, we got Juan Bell in return for Eddie Murray, and they thought he was going to be the shortstop of the future. There was many challenges where people thought that we had developed a shortstop or that was going to be that I would move back to third base. And there were times when I did move back to third base in spring training to give that person a chance or, and to see, because if he was, um, if any of those shortstops would have developed, we would have been a better team. There was a revolving door of third baseman um, when I played short for those 15 years, you can go back and look at the list of how many, the revolving door. And there was a revolving door at second baseman. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I think Billy had the longest stint uh, there, but there was a ton of different second basements. So when you're looking at trying to improve your team, you had the option in 96 to say, I had a really good year in 96. I think I had 26 or 27 home runs, drove in a hundred runs, uh, you know, hit three, 300. Um, I had a really good year. Um, and led the league in, in many of the, the defensive categories. It's kind of funny for someone that was temporarily moved to, to, to shortstop, I led the league in uh, total chances and assists a uh, record amount of times, and I still own the record for assists in a season by a shortstop. So many mm -hmm. times that I wasn't given credit for the, your defensive ability mm -hmm. at shortstop, and you're always looking for how to improve that. So in the 96 year, we had Todd Zeal that came over, you know, in a trade. He was the uh, third baseman. Um, and and even included B.J. Soroff when he came in. Your dad um, I was, was going to say, he got catcher, kicked over to left, right? Catcher. And then uh, – but he was athletic enough to assume the position at third. He did a pretty good job at third. But then he became a gold glove like left fielder because mm -hmm. he uh, really understood uh, the angles of the balls. And he, he did a fantastic job in the outfield. Bobby Bow was over there in 95 at the end of the year. Bobby Bonilla, who started mm -hmm. out of third, but then became an outfielder, and then they started. So they were trying to find offensive uh, people that were there that could play the position. So it wasn't real stable. So when you went into the off, the off season, you could improve the left side of your infield um, by doing one or two ways. You could find a third baseman and then leave me a short, or you can find a shortstop and then move me to third. And so there were some talks about that. And I remember Mike Bork became uh, available as a shortstop. And he was a really good shortstop. And uh, so I remember I had – he wouldn't come over, wouldn't consider it until he talked to me. And, and uh, so I think Kevin Malone called me up and said, uh, could Mike Bork call you? I said, yeah, here's my number. Have him call me. He didn't call me. <laughs> so then uh, <laughs> I called back and said, can you call him? And so I called him and then uh, he was very hesitant. He says, I don't want to do this unless you're, you know, you're okay with it. And I go, I go, we'll be a better team left side of the infield with you playing short and me at third than me at, at short and Todd Zeal or me and, and Bobby Bo or, you know, whatever the combinations were at the time. And so he understood that and he came there. So we, we were an improved left side of the infield for sure. Um, you know, after uh, Bordy came, and Bordy did a really nice job playing shortstop. Mm -hmm. um, and um, we, uh, we, we executed a little bit better um, overall on our defense, and uh, we were able to, to improve um, from the team we had from 96 to 97. So I always think 
nobody nobody asked me, and it's not up to me when I moved from third to short. Or Weaver didn't come in and say, "Hey, would you be willing to do this?" He just moved me. Mm-hmm. And even though you play 15 years at the position, and we're still having success at the position, it's still the responsibility of where the manager or the general manager decide how they want to improve the team. And I thought it was a value that I could play third and somebody else could play short. So that's kind of the way it went. It didn't, it wasn't as smooth as maybe it should have been because uh, there were times when I felt like I was being smeared, like Cal Dali lost one step, he's lost two steps, he's lost three. And you've, mm-hmm. you see that from uh, in your own newspaper that people would be saying those things from your own organization. Right. Uh, and so the irony of that was in 96, I went to Japan you know, at, uh, as the uh, all-star shortstop to compete in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you kind of, you get the articles in the paper from back home about setting up a, a move position. And, and all I said was, all you have to do is call me up and ask me. All you got to do is call me up and say, this is what we're going to do. You know, uh, you okay with that? And, and of course I would have said, fine. So sometimes uh, um, uh, it ended well, but sometimes the processes uh, are, are misunderstood. And there was, there was some misunderstanding in those processes too. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to wrap it up there, but I got to say, it's so probably so important that you were able to block out those external criticisms because when you look back on the move, Bordick was setting fielding records for shortstop after the move. Uh, they broke my record. Yeah, I was going to say you two were both in the top three all time um, at at the at the uh, in the fielding stats at that position. You were still playing at a high level defensively at third, and then moving my dad to the to left field. So that little triangle, that section of the field, all got improved. And I think my dad led the lead in outfield assists for sure, um, and should have been a Gold Glover, but you know they don't always pick the best names; they pick the biggest names. Yep. We don't have time to, for that conversation now because I could go for an hour about that. But, Cal, I really, really appreciate your time. Uh, thanks for so, so much for stopping in. I've learned a lot. I hope others have too. And uh, best to your family. It's really good yeah. talking to you. It was really fun uh, examining things and reexamining things because that's, uh, that's what people do. I, I, I was always analytical. Your dad was extremely analytical. Um, Bordy was pretty analytical. So that, that triangle on that side – we all thought alike and we had really, we had really good success. Mm-hmm. You did. And as a result, the whole team did. It was an exciting time for the Orioles. Um, thank you, Cal. Yep. My pleasure. All right. That's the show. Thank you so much to Cal Ripken for stopping by. Had a lot of fun talking with him and I hope you guys enjoyed his insights. Um, the fun side of what he had to talk about and just our entire conversation. If you enjoyed the episode, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Um, that includes if you have anything that I can work on. Um, yes, a five-star rating and a glowing review helps boost the podcast popularity. It helps with search algorithms when people want to find a sports podcast. But I also look for constructive criticism. I am an athlete at heart, and I look for ways to improve always. So whatever you have to say leave it as a review and leave an honest, you know, whatever amount of stars you believe the podcast is. If that's five, then awesome. That's what I prefer. (laughs) Um, If you want to directly engage with me, you can find me on Instagram at pro corner podcast. I also have a personal account on Instagram at Austin Serhoff. If you want to write something a little bit longer, uh, hit me up Austin at pro corner podcast.com. 
if you want to shoot me an email and chat about something a little bit more in depth. Thanks everyone for stopping by.